This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is Buzz Tarlow. Our podcast, Construction Law Today, began in July 2019 and is now in its second season. In our first year, we produced 14 episodes on a variety of what we hope were timely and interesting topics in the field of construction law. In our upcoming season, we hope to produce similar podcasts at the rate of about one new podcast per month. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. Please let us know what you think we can do to improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is found at the end of this podcast. On behalf of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law, thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. Our subject today is mediation of construction disputes, and in particular, some of the techniques used in what is termed early mediator involvement. Very fortunate to have two of the most experienced and talented lawyers in the field with us today. Dean Thompson, law firm of Fabiansky, Westra, Hart & Thompson in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Bill Geisen, the Cincinnati, Ohio office, Kentucky-based law firm of Stites and Harbison. Both Dean and Bill are fellows of the American College of Construction Lawyers and frequent authors in the field of dispute resolution. Each has built an extensive construction mediation practice. They are also both proponents of the guided choice mediation process. Let me welcome you both to the podcast. I think our listeners would be interested in hearing just a little from each of you with regard to your outstanding construction law practices. Dean, why don't you go first? Well, I've been practicing in the area of construction law almost exclusively for over 36 years. We've got clients that go all over the country, and as a result, I go all over the country helping them resolve construction disputes and trying to stay out of them as well. And of course, when they inevitably get to the dispute phase, I try to help them through the dispute. Often, I serve as a mediator to help other parties who aren't clients resolve their disputes. So I've represented contractors, subs, suppliers, architects, engineers, owners, public owners, and all aspects of the project. So I've sat on every side of the table. And as a result of that, I've got some perspectives on how mediation is done and perhaps better should be done. Bill, why don't you tell us a little about your practice? Well, thank you, Buzz. And Certainly appreciate the opportunity to, to share the stage, so to speak, with Dean. Uh, I've been with Styson Harbison since uh, 2012. I uh, primarily represent contractors and owners in the industry, which I've been doing for over 30 years now. Uh, and I assist those folks in uh, resolving disputes on construction projects throughout the United States. I assist them in resolving the disputes both during the project and sometimes shortly after completion of those jobs. And unfortunately, some of those disputes end up in litigation or in some other form of alternative dispute resolution where I help them in those areas as well. Let's begin our discussion today by talking about, I think what may be termed the standard mediation versus what we hear of now as early mediator involvement. I'll take a stab at that. 
Let me first talk about the standard model. I think we're all familiar with it. Parties are involved in litigation or arbitration. They decide to mediate either by court order or by themselves. And then they select a mediator, schedule a date in three to five days before the mediation. They submit their mediation statements to the mediator and then show up at mediation. Now, that works well enough. The statistics tell us that it does. But in terms of efficiency and early dispute resolution, it can be improved upon. And that's why Bill and I are interested in early engagement of a mediator. And by that, I mean earlier than just being called up, scheduling a date, and receiving briefs. Bill, has, has your experience showed you that uh, getting involved early can make a difference? Yes, Buzz, I think it does because if you get involved too late in the process, significant costs can be incurred whether it be in the uh, litigation process or arbitration process. Potentially, the parties' positions have hardened during the process. Perhaps their relationships have deteriorated through the adjudicative process. And as a result, the options for settlement have lessened or perhaps are lost. And oftentimes, the impediments to settlement are not known by the time that you get to an actual mediation event. So for that reason, I think that the early retention of a mediator is very, very helpful. Well, Dean, let me, let me ask you then, um, this so-called early engagement, how does that change the uh, so-called standard model? Well, what an early engaged mediator tries to do is have confidential discussions with each of the parties and their counsel and devise what might be the best process for their particular dispute. This isn't a one-size-fits-all idea. You have to talk with their, the counsel and figure out, as Bill just said, what are the impediments to settlement? Because if the parties could have settled their case by themselves, they would have done so already. So there must be impediments to settlement. And the mediator calls up the parties and their counsel, can find out what they are, and then design a process with their help. This is often called guided choice. The mediator guides the parties with some suggestions about what might be a good process, but the choice to use them is always with the parties, hence the name guided choice. Bill, let me follow up on something that the Dean talked about that I know in my mediation practice is something that I found can really help, and that is uh, phone discussions with the parties separately um, before you're going to get down to a particular date to schedule a mediation. Have you used that? Do you find it's worthwhile? Absolutely. I think it's worthwhile because what it enables you to do as a mediator is to develop a rapport primarily with the principles of the companies that are involved in the dispute. As you know, at a mediation, parties are putting their blind faith in you as a mediator to help them getting the case resolved. And oftentimes in a standard mediation, it may take a half a day before that rapport is developed. So getting engaged with the parties and particularly the principals early on enables you to develop that rapport before you get to the negotiation phase of the case. Let me just add on to what Bill just said, because we're, we've now all become so Zoom proficient in the COVID age where we're all working from home and 
I think Zoom is a wonderful tool to use with this type of early mediator engagement because you can schedule these calls with the client, with the counsel, have a real face-to-face engagement, and you don't have to plan for travel to do that. You can talk to people across the country, and you get a real head start on the mediation process that way. Because I think we all have gone through a mediation and finally figured out at the 11th hour what the real problem is, and then have to continue the mediation in order to try to address it and resolve it. And the whole idea of a guided choice is to figure that out before the parties meet for their negotiation session. And I think Zoom really helps that. I appreciate those comments, uh, Dean. Let's talk for a minute about Zoom. Bill, what's your experience been with Zoom? All positives, some you don't think it works well. What are your thoughts? Overall, I think that Zoom is a tool that is here to stay because it does enable you to engage as best you can in a face-to-face way. Again, I get back to with the principals who are the decision makers uh, in the dispute. Perhaps I'm old school, but I still enjoy the face-to-face in-person encounters and interactions with the parties and the principals. But in light of where we are in this world today, I think Zoom is a great alternative and it's one here to stay. Let me address this question to both of you. I know that a lot of mediators have been talking about it. One one of the basic reasons why mediation works is because you have people focused on a given issue on a particular day, and presumably that's what everybody's working on. Especially as the mediation gets later into the day, people get tired and the incentive to try to get something resolved increases. How do you guys replicate, if you can, that kind of situation electronically? You know, that's hard to get the sense of urgency communicated when you're on a Zoom call because the assumption is, well, we'll just continue the call later. So I try to impress upon the parties that this is their best chance, perhaps not their last best chance, but it certainly is a good and best chance to get this case resolved and to stay at it. I also find that by using Zoom, we can actually engage the insurance adjusters in the process in a way that's actually better than in-person mediations because so often insurance adjusters refuse to travel out to mediation that's outside their metropolitan area. But if you can use Zoom, they're right in the room with you and you don't get hearsay communications with the adjuster, you communicate with them directly. So I find that to be very helpful. Bill, what's your experience been in that regard? I agree first wholeheartedly with what Dean had to say with respect to the involvement of insurance adjusters. One of the benefits of Zoom and other video platforms is it does enable us as mediators to create separate rooms if you want to bring the principals together, if you want to bring just the lawyers together, if you want to bring groups of people together. So it does enable you to, as you said earlier, replicate that live mediation process that you just can't accomplish on a telephone call. So that feature of Zoom and some of the other video platforms is very helpful in trying to get the parties to that end goal of resolving the dispute. Dean, you and I were talking earlier about some of the situations where 
guided choice can help make a difference. Let's, let's talk about a, a fairly common situation I think a lot of us deal with, and this is delay claims, and there's often a number of experts with competing views, and um, you get in there with often multiple parties and trying to figure out where to start and how to communicate with the parties in their respective languages can be an issue. Have you seen have you seen that kind of situation work um, in the guided choice application? I have, Buzz. Using the standard model, what I often receive as a mediator is a statement that reads awfully like a litigation brief, and then appended to it are these reams of expert reports that I'm asked to review three to five days before the mediation session begins and then meaningfully discuss them among the parties, which, of course, I try to do. But again, near the end of the day, you begin to realize what the real problem in the schedule analysis is, what the real disagreement is. And you realize that there's going to have to be further discussions before progress can be made, before positions can be changed. Now, in the guided choice process, you can understand that earlier and suggest many tools to address it. As an example, you can propose that the experts be hot tubbed. It's a terrible phrase, especially if you have in mind the experts that I typically see to put them in a hot tub. But it is a good process by which they begin to talk with each other and come to common ground and get rid of a lot of extraneous issues and focus on the main ones. So that's one example by which guided choice can bring some clarity and focus to the process. Bill, do you think that if you as a mediator get involved in that kind of case earlier, and you might otherwise, that it can make a difference? Absolutely. I think that what both Dean and I are emphasizing about guided choice is that it is epitomized by a robust pre-mediation phase that enables you to identify the difficult issues, go through the what-if scenarios, perhaps have the parties exchange additional information on key points, or as Dean just talked about, get the experts in the same room, so to speak, try to work through some of those thorny issues before you spend hours upon hours of the mediation just trying to understand what their opinions are. We'll be back with more Construction Law Today in just a moment. Welcome back to Construction Law Today. Our subject is Early mediator involvement, sometimes called guided choice, it's that technique of mediation that begins far before the day of mediation itself. We're talking with Dean Thompson and Bill Geisen. Dean, let me ask you just a little bit of the background of guided choice. So where did it come from? Well, I first became acquainted with it decades ago. It was introduced to me as the Chicago method of dispute resolution. And I think Paul Laurie was the author of its inception. He had the idea that really rather than litigate the cases, they ought to be 
they ought to be resolved at the mediation. And the only way to do that is to come very well prepared. And so that there was an equality of preparation, you needed a mediator who was engaged well before the mediation session started to ensure that everybody became prepared for a productive mediation session, which led to this guided choice idea of developing an appropriate process to do that. And perhaps the guiding feature of guided choice is that there is a healthy information exchange before the mediation session, not a carpet bombing document request, but I'll say a smart bomb request for essential documents that satisfy one of the other party's informational needs. And if that type of information is exchanged, then people come prepared to make a good business decision. Bill, you were telling me about a case that you knew of involves some pretty hard-headed people, not that I've ever experienced that in the construction industry. And um, some in-house lawyers. Tell us a little about that. Sure. One of the benefits of guided choice is it enables the mediator to identify emotional components of the participants, which might create impediments to settlement. And in this particular situation, particularly one of the uh, executives was scorch of the earth type of person. The two outside lawyers involved were flamethrowers. However, the the two in-house counsel uh, seemed much more reasonable. So as the mediator, I learned that getting all of these folks in the same room would be more than counterproductive. So through a series of individual meetings, knowing the personalities of the players, we were able to work through those impediments and then through the exchange of information such as costs and project photos and daily reports, we got to the point where we were very close and then I knew it was time to get the two in-house counsel involved who I learned were much more reasonable and sure enough, we got her settled. I'm interested in a, a situation that I've now seen a number of times and I'll ask both of you for your input on this. So much of construction litigation is about the meaning of contractual terms. Dean, I'll start with you. What do you do in that kind of situation where the parties just simply read the contract language differently? There's a number of things you can do once you figure out that that is a major impediment to settling the case. Sometimes I've offered both counsel under my guidance to make a presentation to the other side. And I might ask some pointed questions to each side about their reading of the case. And often just that ability to present to the other side, get some feedback and have the other side appreciate their risk is enough to get them off their certain position and realize that they might have some risk. So that's helpful. Sometimes I've suggested referral to an outside decision maker not a binding decision maker, but somebody that both parties trust to give them a reading about the contract. And sometimes they accept that. Sometimes it calls their bluff that maybe they aren't that sure about their reading to want a third party to opine on their position. But if they do get that third party opinion, that does change their view of the case. Of course, it's not binding, but again, it shows them that risk is present in their position and that helps settle a case. 
Have you seen that kind of situation, Bill, and would you approach it in a similar manner? Yes, I would. Not only with legal issues, but another example might be if there are highly technical engineering or construction issues involved in a case through the a guided choice process, you're better able to engage a third party expert whom both parties trust and have him or her render an opinion on the technicalities of the issues that is being debated in the mediation. Now, let me follow up uh, your response there with an aspect of construction dispute mediation that we all have to deal with, and that's insurance. How can early mediator involvement or the so-called guided choice process help on that aspect of mediation? Well, I think we've all been involved in mediation, whether as an advocate or as a mediator, where we find out at three or four o'clock in the afternoon that there's an insurance coverage issue that is an impediment or barrier to settlement. With guided choice mediation, you'll know that those coverage issues exist before you even get to the mediation or negotiating event. And there may be ways to work through those issues, such as both Dean and I talked about engaging a third party to assist the parties in trying to understand that coverage dispute. Dean, you've written extensively about insurance issues and construction disputes. How would you handle that kind of situation? Uh, To build off what Bill said, it's important to get the insurance adjuster engaged well before the start of the mediation. I was talking to one experienced mediator who said that advocates would be profoundly stupid if they thought that the insurer was going to change its position based on a memo they received three days before the start of the mediation. There are processes by which adjusters and insurance companies have to go through in order to change their evaluation of the case. And so you better get that information to them well before the start of the mediation session, at least 30 days before. And sometimes you run into insurance defense counsel, of course, who are appointed to defend defendants, and it's a conflict for them to engage in coverage issues. But if they aren't going to do it on behalf of their defendant client, who is? And if you find out that no one is pursuing coverage, then you, as a mediator, can suggest to the client who doesn't have coverage counsel that he or she better get some because coverage is a major case, a major issue in most of these cases. So it's that type of early problem identification that Bill's talking about with guided choice that really sets this method apart from others, I believe. Bill, have you found it to be possible to engage those players in the insurance issues in the case early on, well before the actual date of the mediation? Yes, again, this gets back to, Buzz, the fact that you're working hand in hand with the principals and their lawyers and guiding them on what are the potential barriers that we need to work through in order to get the case settled. So it's in working hand in hand with them that you're able to accomplish that result. Well, so much of what Guided Choice offers sounds great, Dean, but what are some of the things that prevent it from working? There must be some. Well, there are. Most attorneys and clients 
don't want to put a lot of effort into a mediation. They think that's money that would be better spent on litigation preparation. They just don't understand that it's the old penny wise and pound foolish. You can, you can spend a lot of pounds on litigation, but if you spent a, a few pennies on mediation preparation, you'd increase your chances of settlement greatly. No one wants to spend a lot of money at the start of a case, but if you do spend some money in preparing for a successful mediation, you'll get great dividends. And you also have to remember that the money you spend preparing for the mediation, if the mediation is unsuccessful, is the same money you'd have to spend anyway preparing for the litigation. So you haven't lost any money. You've just advanced some of the preparation costs. But again, the cost-benefit analysis of that leads you to conclude that you should do that earlier than later. Well, Bill, as a guided choice type of mediator, how do you encourage the parties to put in that effort that Dean's talking about? I think part of it, Buzz, is education because they're not as familiar with this type of process as they are with uh, standard mediation. And to expound upon what Dean said, I think that oftentimes ego gets in the way because either the lawyer thinks that he or she is the master litigator or the general counsel thinks that he or she is the master negotiator and you are replacing them. And by no means is the guided choice replacing those individuals. They are a resource to both the general counsel and a resource to the litigation counsel. And that's what they need to know as they work through this process. Dean, let me ask you this kind of question. If you as mediator could talk to you as counsel for a party in a complex construction dispute, what would you, the mediator, tell you as the lawyer in terms of taking the best opportunity to make the mediation successful? I think a lot of advocates could realize that they themselves could be a guiding choice mediator by preparing the mediation for success. As an example, if you represent a general contractor and you've got lots of subs that you're seeking indemnity from, and you've got a dispute with the owner for extra costs, but you have to be prepared about how you're going to manage all those subcontractor claims and at the same time remain a unified front to the owner so that the owner doesn't divide and conquer your position and get the subs in general fighting amongst each other. Now, that takes a lot of preparation. It takes a lot of calls with subcontractor counsel to agree upon a process by which their claims can be resolved and the general's claims can be resolved against the owner. And in a sense, as an advocate, you're acting as a guided choice mediator in setting up that process so that there's some organization uh, established when you get to the actual mediation. Bill, I'm going to put a slightly different spin on that question. Let's say that I come to you as counsel representing a party. We like to use you as a guided choice type mediator, but I warn you in advance that I am fully convinced that my client is 100% correct. What are you going to talk to me about in terms of facilitating the guided choice process? Buzz, I would talk to you about the benefits of customizing the dispute resolution process for your client, which 
very well may turn out that your client is 100% correct, but you're never going to convince the other side of that without a customized dispute resolution process. It reminds me of a phrase I think was made famous uh, decades ago by a professor, Frank Sander at the Harvard Law School. And he used the phrase, fit the forum to the fuss. And so that's what I think guided choice is doing. It's fitting the forum to the fuss to determine whether in fact your client is in fact 100% correct in this position. Our guests today have been Bill Geisen and Dean Thompson, our subject matter guided choice mediation. I thank you both for your time. It was very interesting. Thanks, Buzz. I appreciated the chance to talk with you today. Thanks, Buzz, for this opportunity. And thanks, Dean, for sharing the mic on this important topic. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the express written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about Construction Law Today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, Buzz Tarlow, jtarlow at lawmt.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.